Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal is to find exceptional people doing exceptional things in their fields and interview them and bring that knowledge back to the listeners. So today I have uh, two people. I have uh, Catherine Refugi. She's a PhD student in Harvard University's program in virology. She's a member of the Sabeti Lab. Um, And then I also have Cameron Mirvold. Uh, he's a postdoc fellow in the Sabeti lab as well. And we're going to be talking about uh, a bit of virology and CRISPR-Cas9 or uh, CRISPR-Cas mechanisms and how they'll, uh, it, I guess, impact and interact with uh, the current COVID virus and uh, many other things. Thanks for coming, both of you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I know we have to talk about it at least a bit. Um, would you prefer to talk and focus more on, you know, the current COVID-19 and talk about surveillance or... Would you rather talk about uh, other uses of CRISPR and, you know, what's coming for antibiotics after uh, the small molecule drugs we have right now? Yeah, I mean, Cameron and I, sort of our brains are in the COVID-19 space right now. So I'm happy to, to start okay. there if that sounds good to you. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll start there. yeah. So what, uh, what are you working on in particular as it relates to COVID right now? Yeah, maybe Cameron, you want to take this first question? Yeah, sure. Definitely. So, you know, with the... COVID-19 pandemic, we really see uh, a lot of challenges in the diagnostic space. I think there's been a lot of conversations over the last you know, couple of weeks, if not a couple of months, really, that we need more tests. We need to make it really easy for people to test for this virus to see who is infected, who is not infected. And um, that's something we've really you know, focused on quite a bit. Uh, so we've been uh, developing a variety of CRISPR-based uh, diagnostics to try and uh, detect the coronavirus as well as related uh, respiratory virus. When you say uh, test, is this the uh, test for antibodies using blood or is it uh, the nasal swab to, uh, to do polymerase chain reaction? Yeah, so we're testing uh, primarily using uh, nasal swab samples, but also are interested in other non-invasive bodily fluids. We're testing for nucleic acid. Uh, and so that's, you know, analogous to uh, one of these uh, PCR-based assays. But the idea is that this is a test that would be much easier to perform, that you could do uh, a lot more easily in, in different samples. Oh, would it be easier than the nasal swab or easier than a blood test? Or would it be more accurate? Like, what would be the benefits? Yeah, great question. So, uh, you know, we'd fundamentally be using the same specimen type as a PCR-based test. The idea is that the test itself would be faster to perform, would require a lot less equipment and infrastructure. So it's something you could imagine uh, doing at, say, a doctor's office, or you could use it to, you know, test to see who is infected uh, at a school or uh, in the workplace, things like that. And oh, how long would it take for the results? So we're, we're, you know, aiming for uh, results as quickly as possible. Certainly, uh, less than one hour, but uh, less than half an hour, uh, ideally. That's something we're currently, you know, trying to improve. The only issue I, I wonder about is based on the, I guess I'm just going to call it irrational, irrationally high response, possibly, to the virus. You know, if you uh, if you work somewhere and you test and 
you know, they find that you have presence of the virus. I mean, will you be, I guess you'd be sent home, but you know, what, what happens to you from there? You know, would, I mean, what happens if there's a, again, an overreaction and you're stuck at home for inordinary, you know, inordinate uh, lengths of time because there's just fear, you know, what if 14 days is not enough? What's uh, I mean, testing I know would help, but then again, people's reaction to someone's test results, do you see that as an issue or is that really not uh, a concern? It is something we definitely think about. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, the test results get in- interpreted uh, correctly. Um, there are people who, you know, don't have a whole lot of symptoms who can transmit the virus. And that's really challenging uh, in this context. There's also, um, you know, people who uh, recover after different amounts of time. And so if you've been sick and had a positive test at some point, we'd like to know, you know, at what point are you still testing? Um, because if people, you know, think that they have recovered and they have not, that, that poses a, a real challenge to them potentially going and infecting others inadvertently. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of the uh, issues surrounding test results, I think, are really um, going to be addressed by, by having more testing that is easier to do and, and, and is simpler to, to interpret. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, fear and uncertainty, and, and that, a lot of that comes from the fact that people can't get a definitive answer uh, one way or the other as to whether or not they're infected, and so you assume the worst. Uh, but if we could actually test a lot of people and tell them, no, you, we, we don't believe that you are infectious or we don't believe that you have the virus, that would be really... I just want to chime in here too. And and, uh, one of the questions you raised is, you know, how do you know if you quarantine for 14 days, whether or not you're safe to sort of go out in uh, in a safe manner? And I think that's that's one of the things that Cameron and I think deeply about in terms of, you know, expanding expanding diagnostic capabilities so that you can continue to test you know, over periods of time and actually be able to tell someone now is a safe time for you uh, to, to interact with others. And I think one of the things you also mentioned is serology testing. And I think that is sort of now becoming at least possible from a research setting. And that those sorts of diagnostic tests to figure out who actually has developed antibodies are also helpful in, in figuring out steps for people that have been exposed or have sick and then recovered. Well, what's the current guidance if you, um, you know, do a nasal swab and you have no virus in you, but you have antibodies, are you okay? What's the guidance if you have antibodies, but you still do have virus in you, then what's the guidance? Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak to the guidance in terms of the nucleic acid-based test, which is uh, you get a test, you wait for your result, um, and then the guidance is if that test is positive, you should stay home for at least seven days after your symptoms have completely subsided. Um, But those, at least to my knowledge, those individuals don't get tested again after the fact. Um, I think there's still a lot of sort of terms of, you know, seven days might be the route, but I think we're going to continue to learn sort of if the actual range is. And what about technically how the test works? You you say you're looking for the presence of nucleic acid. Does that mean you're looking for the ribonucleic acid that constitutes the viral payload, or what, what do you mean? Yes, that's exactly what I mean. So um, COVID-19 um, is a disease caused by an RNA virus. So um, the nucleic acid tests, as well as the, the diagnostics that can have been working on, are, are detecting that ribonucleic acid, the RNA that's uh, that encodes for all the viral proteins and is uh, protected in the viral envelope uh, in a sample. But it- so with uh, PCR, 
I, I would think that the presence for that is looked for and then amplified, but I would guess the amplification rate would tell you how much is there currently, you know, how fast it ramps up. With your nucleic acid test, I mean, what, how much are you looking for? How much does there need to be, does there need to be to show presence? And then can you tell the level, like the viral load the person's carrying, the degree to which they have? Yeah, that's a great question. So the PCR tests that we're using now, a lot of them are quantitative in some form. So the faster something amplifies, the more viral RNA that is there. Um, our test is similarly uh, quantitative in a certain range of, of levels of virus. And so that is definitely helpful in terms of thinking about, um, yeah, how much virus a, a certain patient has or that's present in a given sample. Um, and all of the tests as well as all the testing that we're doing has sort of a suite of negative controls that sort of tell you, you know, is, is this sample positive or is this, and sort of lets you distinguish between things that are very low versus negative. So if, if I test and I have no symptoms, I feel fine. And I test, are you, again, are you able to look at the ramp rate and are you able to tell me, okay, since you have no symptoms, but your ramp rate is, I don't know, fast, that means you're probably going to be sick over the next several days and you're still early in the process. Or let's say I've had symptoms, I'm in the thick of it or I'm starting to feel better and you know I do the test that I have a low ramp rate, does that mean that I'm closer to the end of the course? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think the answer is that it, it gives you some uh, predictive information. It's not perfect though. Uh, one of the things with this virus in particular is that it seems that people's condition can change very rapidly, uh, even over the course of a single day. So people who uh, are you know, relatively fine can all of a sudden find themselves in a hospital or an intensive care unit uh, after, after a short amount of time. So I think that's, that's the challenge here. Uh, it is believed that that is generally linked to the amount of virus that someone has, but uh, the exact details of how that work are still being figured out. I mean, this is a virus that we haven't known about for very long. Um, in terms of our test, I think we can uh, give you some information about, you know, how much virus is present in the sample, um, which, you know, provides uh, some information there uh, that, that could be useful. If you were to do two tests instead, a certain amount of time apart, would that give you a lot more information? You know, if uh, you did one a day apart, would that be very useful or an hour apart? Yeah, it depends. I mean, this is the, the viral levels are something that does change over time, but it also fluctuates a lot. And so uh, I think you would need something that was spaced ideally several days apart to really give you confidence that there was uh, a, a long-term sort of change in, in what was happening with the infection. Um, this is particularly the case because you're measuring the virus, you know, in a particular swab, um, and there is, you know, variability in, in, within those measurements. Um, it might be that, you know, in one particular moment, you're producing a lot more virus than you would be, you know, say later in the day. Well, there are poor souls that are going to be doing this test uh, maybe 10 or 20 times over, over a week so you could see the pattern and the, you know, how the curve changes for some examples. Um, there are, I believe, some uh, clinical studies underway where they are doing repeated testing on patients. I don't think that they're testing with that type of frequency, though. I think it's more typical um, to take a nasal swab every few days. Uh, again, because of this variability issue, they really want to get a picture of sort of how it changes, you know, over a longer period. Because people can be sick right. for you know, a few weeks. Well, right. But if you had a, you know, a cohort of, I don't know, 100 people and you tested them every day for two weeks, you probably would learn a lot about the course of uh, of the disease is, you know, maybe get a typical, uh, 
experience of how it moves and how it grows and changes and diminishes. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it would be very interesting to get more information there. I think it's something where there are initial reports starting to come out uh, about that type of uh, information, but I think we could always use more um, and it would be very helpful to know, like you said, sort of in detail. So what's the end goal? Would, would it be like, you know, is an hour enough? And, you know, how much does the test cost? Like, you know, would a great endpoint be if the test was $5 and got you information in five minutes? You know, what would be like an amazing result that would really make this very scalable quickly? Yeah. I mean, in terms of cost, definitely a cost that's a, a few dollars per test would be ideal. Um, and that's something we would love to be able to achieve. Uh, in terms of the time, that one varies a bit more depending on the use case. Um, if it's a test that's being administered at, say, a doctor's office, then definitely, uh, or say at a drive-through, you know, then turnaround time becomes really important. You want something ideally within 10 or 20 minutes. Uh, that said, I think that there are other situations where a slightly longer test would be okay. I'm imagining here a situation where someone could potentially even um, administer a, a test on, on themselves. Um, and if you could make something that was easy enough that someone could use it uh, in that fashion, then you really uh, could allow the test to run long. So um, where are you at currently? Like what are your metrics uh, for it to be deployed? And uh, are you going to keep working on, again, price and speed? Or is it good enough at this point? Now it's going to be an expansion of it. Yeah, I think we're still in this uh, optimization phase of, of getting the test to be as good as possible. Uh, because we really think that before you spread something like this far and wide, you want to have it working, you know, as well as you can. So we're, we're currently working hard on that. And what about uh, specificity and sensitivity? Um, are you able to reveal what that is and, you know, what would be uh, good numbers for a test to be really workable? Yeah, Kath, maybe you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, one of the actual sort of selling points of, of the CRISPR-based diagnostics we're developing is, the, is that specificity aspect. So um, it relies on sort of a complementary base pairing between the CRISPR protein's uh, guide RNA and the target. And that um, pairing actually is so specific that um, it only takes about two mutations for the CRISPR RNA to no longer, or for the guide RNA to no longer bind and, uh, and produce a signal with the diagnostic. So in that way, um, it's actually inherently very specific. Um, and then sort of alongside of, of that power, um, our lab is very interested in, in computational tools that can help us design the right target sequences to go after um, because viruses evolve um, quite readily, uh, we need to make sure that we pick a target sequence that is going to be robust um, over longer periods of time. And so in that way, um, the way that we designed the assay, it was going to be able to work um, for, for uh, COVID-19, but also um, because of this specificity, it won't react with flu or any other common respiratory samples, and it also won't react with any of the related coronaviruses that we've seen um, years ago, like MERS and, and SARS-1. Well, I've seen like on GISAID, they're collecting sequences worldwide, and there were over 4,000 different sequences collected. But more importantly, they said there was like 1,600 variations already. So how do you make sure that your test is specific enough, but not too specific, and it can accommodate you know, these changes in the virus, it seems like a tough task. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is in some degrees. Um, but what is actually kind of powerful about, you know, designing diagnostics 
for viral pathogens is that there are parts of the virus that are so essential that they, so the more we accumulate, the more it will become clear which of those parts of the virus are essential and cannot, the sequence cannot change. And so we're able to design um, assays against those, those parts of the virus. And I think it's, I guess flu is a great case of this where we have thousands, millions of sequences that we've accumulated, accumulated over years and years. And yet there are still regions of the virus that you can design a diagnostic against because of the fact that there are essential parts of the genome. So um, it's, it's it's sort of a nice uh, test case for our computational tools to be able to select those um, best targets um, and then make sure that um, that our assay can work over extended periods of time. Um, that being said, uh, we also sort of revisit our designs pretty regularly to make sure that if, in fact, some of the new data that has come in um, will affect our designs and we make sure to update them if that's the case. Okay. Um, we haven't gotten into the mechanics of it, but would you mind now, you, we, you know, you've talked about using CRISPR type uh, technology to do this. I'm not sure if I quite understand or listeners do. So how, how does the test work specifically? Yeah. Um, so Cameron and I have been sort of building upon um, a tech, CRISPR-based technology that was initially developed a few years ago now, which is called Sherlock. Um, and Sherlock is a diagnostic technology that has or two steps. Um, the first step is the amplification where you uh, pick up a particular target uh, of choice, and then you amplify the sequence of that target using an amplification method that requires a single temperature. Um, so that's the first step of the, the technology. And then the second step um, is the detection aspect, where you're actually going to um, find the target of interest and then detect some sort of signal. Um, and that part of the assay works by um, using a CRISPR protein, and in our case, we use Cas13. Um, and Cas13 can cleave RNA, so like um, COVID. And then um, when it can, when it actually sees that target sequence of the coronavirus, it becomes activated and then can cleave a reporter RNA that we introduce into our assay. That then, um, when cleaved produces a signal. And that signal is what we actually detect um, in the assay. And so um, that's been shown um, for many other viruses, including Zika and dengue um, and flu as well. Um, But uh, the cool thing about it is that the reporter can be designed such that it's um, read via a fluorescent machine, like a qPCR machine or a plate reader. But there's also uh, formulations of it that can be... uh, a visual readout so that you don't need a machine in order to uh, see the assay result. I guess literally step-by-step step what's happening. You have this, uh, I didn't even know what you call it. I, I mean, I guess, can you, can you break it down even a little bit more? So is the virus uh, being opened up and the RNA is being cut that way? Or is it uh, the virus has now injected its RNA into cells and, you know, the uh, CRISPR system is going into the cells and finding the sequence and then cleaving it? Like, where is the cleavage happening and, and, and how is it happening exactly, if you don't mind? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, in the diagnostic assays that we're developing, we're taking a clinical sample and then we're heating the sample such to release the RNA from the viral envelope. So um, they that heat, um, as well as we add a chemical to to 
to protect the RNA from degradation. Um, that allows us to sort of outside of cells detect the RNA from the virus because we're um, the goal right now after we get through the optimization stage will be to, to test on sort of clinical samples like the nasal swabs. And so um, those are generally pretty cell-free, but there will be some low level of cells in them. Um, but the viruses will be sort of free outside of cells in that sample type. And so our assay will sort of uh, unlock the, the RNA from the virus so that we can actually then do the amplification and detection after the fact. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's interesting that heat will do it. What, what temperature will do it? And you know, you know why in, in, you hear all over the place, like, the virus doesn't like heat, but that's a, you know, a non-scientific statement, but here you are using heat. So specifically like what, is there a trigger that for some reason the virion will open up at a certain temperature and, and why? And it's interesting. Cameron, maybe you want to answer the specific? Yeah, definitely. So this is something that we've actually been exploring for, for a while. And it's, it's been sort of known that uh, you can inactivate a virus by heating it. And that's fundamentally because uh, there's a lot of proteins that form the, the viral capsid surrounding its, its genome. And, and when you heat up uh, the virus, those proteins fall apart, um, and that basically destroys the virus. Um, but what we did to enable us to detect the virus is we actually made a two-step uh, protocol for uh, heating. And the reason we did that is because when we try to detect these viruses, there's a huge problem, which is that uh, there are all of these ribonucleases, uh, or RNases, that are present uh, in all of our bodily fluids. So in saliva, in blood, in urine, um, all sorts of places. And, and those uh, RNases like to degrade RNA molecules, and it makes it really challenging to detect RNA uh, directly from those bodies. So what we did is we found a way to inactivate those RNases in sort of the first step. At a moderate temperature, the virus sort of stays intact, uh, but we destroy all of the surrounding um, nuclease. And then we raise the temperature even higher uh, usually somewhere between 60 and 70 degrees, but that depends a bit on the virus. Some viruses are more heat stable than others. Uh, and, and once we've done that and, and heated it for a sufficient period of time, uh, that, that heat is able to uh, completely inactivate. Oh, it's, well, obviously 60 to 70 C. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty hot. Um, yeah. Mm. And sometimes even higher than that. It just, it really depends on the virus. There are different, you know, temperatures and times that we figured out uh, experimentally. Do you think that, you know, in, in, someone's body, I mean, I guess the core temperature, inner temperature would be 98.6 approximately. If someone runs a fever and they go up to 102, 103, do you think that would have any measurable effect on the virion integrity or no? Yeah. So it is believed to some extent that that can help uh, uh, inhibit the virus from replicating um, and that that is one, one reason why uh, fevers might actually be a, a useful thing is because they would slow down but Kath can okay, but experimentally, you have to go way beyond that to 60 to 70 C to really get good effect. Well, to completely destroy it, yes. But um, at, a, at, a, at a fever level temperature, it just might be less effective at infecting cells. And it only takes a little effect to potentially slow down the virus a lot. Uh, it sort of spreads exponentially right. in your body. Well, it's interesting because, you know, again, I hear temperature talked about, but just in completely unscientific terms. So that's why I wanted to ask you. But this this gives like a nice framework as to why and how much and it's you know i appreciate you explaining it yeah definitely so okay so the the crispr it, it selectively cuts the rna at the places you want it to cut and then what you're amplifying the the cut pieces to see the the prevalence of them yeah sort of so basically 
uh, once Cast 13 uh, binds to its target and starts cutting, it becomes very active. And then it can start cutting a separate RNA molecule that we introduce into the reaction, which is a reporter. Um, and that reporter molecule produces a signal when it gets cut by Cas13. Um, and that process basically allows us to take that one specific, you know, Cas13 binding event and turn it into many, many subsequent cleavages. So it's a form of amplification. So what are some of the, uh, the early roadblocks you had that made this, uh, you know, not work yet? What did, what did you have to overcome that was tricky? Yeah, I think the big challenge that we face here is 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 making an assay that's as simple to use as possible. Um, there are a lot of other ways to detect viral nucleic acid that are more complicated that are great, you know, in a laboratory setting, whether that's in a hospital or a clinical lab or or what have you. But I think really making something that's simple and robust that can be used by someone who is maybe not an expert who doesn't have a ton of training that's um, that's really the goal and and that's the challenge is to to finally tune the components of, of, of those reactions to get them to work, you know, as well as they can. And what's the preferred uh, way to get this, this data? Why nasal swap? Why not ask someone to cough into a, uh, you know, a permeable substance and sample from there or just draw their blood or, you know, saliva? Why, why nasal swab? Yeah, great question. Kath, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, so... There's a couple, probably a couple of reasons. So um, one, you wouldn't necessarily want to take blood because you want to collect um, collect from the site where where the infection is sort of most prevalent. And so that would be either sort of the lung or, uh, or the uh, nasal cavity. And then the other reason why they do sort of nasal cavity is because it's sort of, it's safer to sort of uh, take take a sample from that area as opposed to having sort of a person cough and spread droplets in, in many locations. It sort of is better because it keeps the, the sample collector safe, but also is just as effective at, at um, isolating whether or not there are uh, viruses in, in a particular uh, clinical sample. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I, I figured you could cough in a, hopefully a sanitary way, but you know, what about saliva? Again, is that, inferior to a nasal swab because again the the, uh, the virus is much more likely to be found in the nasal passages versus anywhere else yeah i i would i would say so so there's some viruses that are definitely very readily secreted in saliva for sort of lung infections it's definitely preferable to to take from a nasal sample okay and well i've also heard of the nasal samples you have to go like pretty far back into the nose and it's uh not not a comfortable or a nice thing. So I guess, is that, is that the case? You have to like jam the Q-tip all the way into their brain almost, you know, just. Like you I have, I have seen, there's a picture that I saw online maybe a couple of days ago that shows how far back it has to go. And it does have to go quite far, far back there. So it definitely, when you were asking questions about, you know, collecting many, many times, I don't think uh, it's probably more comfortable for the, for the patient to also not have to do the nasal swabs too many times. Well, if, um, if you want it to be in the most sensitive place, I could see that makes sense for like an asymptomatic person, but someone that's symptomatic, I would think that you could get blood or something else because you don't, you wouldn't need to necessarily go to the place where the virus is most prevalent. You would know probably, all right, well, it's probably in the blood by now if they're symptomatic. So I would think that the nasal swab really would be only be for people that appear to be okay, because then you're looking for any sign of it, or is that wrong thinking? No, I mean, I think what from what we know, um, 
the sam- sampling from either the nasal swab or even the lung, if someone is very sick, is going to give you a better picture of actual viral load of that of that individual because there may be some in the blood, but it won't really be representative of what like the load of the virus in the particular tissue that it readily infects. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and one thing I would say, you know, to sort of build on that is is that if someone is shedding a lot of virus it might be possible to detect it, for example, in their saliva, which is, you know, pretty easy to acquire. Uh, the challenge is just that that's not a, a certain thing. So it might be that, you know, for someone who's really sick, uh, only 70% of the time are, is, is there going to be enough virus in the saliva to detect that way. So it might have some uh, benefit, but if you're going through the effort of, of taking the test uh, and doing a test, um, in, in many cases, it's worth, you know, uh, taking the extra time to get a really quality sample just so that when you tell someone the result, you can have a lot of confidence that that result is meaningful, that it wasn't just, oh, the virus was there, but we couldn't detect it type of thing. Well, if you had to pick second best to sample, what would it be? Yeah, I mean, that could be uh, like a sputum sample. Um, as Kath mentioned, you know, that one's a little bit more difficult to, to collect. Um, it also depends a lot on the age of the person. So many people who are getting quite sick with this virus are older and they're not really able to cough up sputum very easily. Um, so that can be a bit of a challenge there. Uh, similar thing with uh, sort of younger uh, people. But um, yeah, that probably would be the, the, the second. Okay. I was just wondering, or maybe there would be a, you could have someone like, um, you know, suck on a cough drop and then actually use the cough drop to, uh, you know, maybe enough saliva and stuff would get on the cough drop that they could use it. Or I don't know. Just thinking of different things. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be great if we had a way of actually sampling, you know, uh, from the right part of the body, you know, in a way that was less invasive for a patient. So if we had, you know, some approach like that, that would be cool. Yeah. Hmm. So what's the, uh, what's the timeline from here for you? Is the test ready? Is it almost ready? And uh, then what's the scallop look like? Like what's going to happen from now? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, right now we're in this mode of trying to optimize the test, make it as good as possible. I think, uh, you know, at that point, we felt like the test was ready, we would do um, in, a, in a research setting, you know, test it out uh, on a small number uh, of, of patient samples uh, just to see if it still works well in that more challenging context. Uh, and then if that's successful, then we would start thinking about, you know, can we make uh, a lot more of this test? Can we get uh, regulatory approval uh, and things like that? But those are, you know, definitely things that are, that are more on the horizon. I think in, in the short term, we just want to make sure the test, like the technology behind it too, is, is, is working as well as possible. Um, that said, you know, these days things, things um, you know, move a lot faster than you might uh, otherwise anticipate just because of the nature of the situation. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's possible that this could, uh, could be useful uh, sooner rather than later, but um, there is definitely uncertainty around that as far as making sure that the test yeah, I mean, under normal circumstances, how long would it take, you think, to get approval and get the test out there? And, and is there pressure on you, either self-imposed or from outside, to hurry up and get this going? Yeah, I mean, normally this is a process that takes quite a while. Um, however, uh, given, this, given the sort of circumstances, and this is something that, that the FDA does uh, on a number of occasions when there is uh, a situation that's of, of public health concern, uh, they sort of uh, allow... Uh, for the standards to be lowered a bit. This is something called the Emergency Use Act, um, or EUA, which is a uh, basically a way for FDA to say, you don't need to test this as much as you normally would. Given the situation, we think it will be 
you know, really beneficial to get a bunch of tests out there for a new virus. So when Ebola happened, when Zika happened, you know, uh, during H1N1, the FDA sort of said, you know, uh, we're going to allow uh, companies uh, to develop these types of tests and, um, and, and, and get them approved more easily. And that's certainly something that has happened uh, with the coronavirus as well. And what's this, I mean, is this, is this the first time you've used the CRISPR technology specifically for this application? And what's, what's this going to allow you to do once you're successful at it? What, what other things would you test in this way? Yeah. So as Kath mentioned, you know, we've uh, used uh, these CRISPR-based diagnostic assays for a number of different viruses previously, um, in, including things like Zika and, and dengue and, and influenza. And really, uh, you know, we would love to develop tests for uh, all of the viruses that are, that are you know, threatening to, to human health and, 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 and more broadly to develop tests that can test for more than one virus. Uh, because the paradigm, you know, nowadays is really uh, focused on, you know, we might test you for one thing, we might test you for a second thing, maybe you'll get a flu test, maybe a strep test, maybe mono if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on your perspective. And I think there's a real, uh, you know, need out there uh, to, to test people for, for more uh, different things so that we could actually tell you what you're in. Because most of the time that you get sick, you know, you go to the doctor, they, they diagnose you based on symptoms, and you don't really necessarily ever figure out what may- Yeah, that's true. And if it's fast enough, too, then they can give you uh, more targeted therapy than just, you know, let's say a broad-spectrum antibiotic or, you know, uh, generic antivirals or no antivirals at all, et cetera. That's right. And also, I think for the patient, it's, it's, it's really nice to know, like, what it actually is. Is this something serious? Should I be worried about it? Should I worry about it spreading, you know, to others in my family or uh, coworkers or, or things like that? Uh, these are questions that people, you know, we're, we're sort of in the back of people's minds always, but I think now... Uh, the world has changed and people are starting to really like think about these uh, more frequently given, given the whole uh, penetration. Okay. Very good. Well, where can people find out more about the Sabeti lab and your guys' work in particular? Yeah. yeah so, so we have, we have a website and that sort of site has you no know, bios on Cameron and myself, but also generally what the lab works on, which we do a wide range of for technologies to also roll um, sequencing for sort of genomic and uh, and viral transmission work. So definitely the best okay. place to look. So it's sabetilab.org. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. I appreciate uh, both of you coming and thank you. It's very timely and uh, it's awesome that uh, you guys are figuring this out. So thank you for what you do and for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.